Hello, and welcome to the RP HealthCast by Rooney Partners. I'm your host, Jeffrey Friedman. One of the most controversial issues in this year's political race, as well as part of the recent Supreme Court nomination, is around the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, also known as the ACA or Obamacare. Literally one week following the November 3rd national election, the U.S. Supreme Court will hear oral arguments in a case titled California v. Texas. The case in which the Trump administration and a group of attorneys general are challenging the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act. Now, will the court strike down the health care law? Some of the key provisions in this 900-plus page act that was approved 10 years ago, provisions are expanded access to health insurance, increased consumer protections, emphasized prevention and wellness, an expanded healthcare workforce, and a curb to rising healthcare costs. And one of its main aims was to extend health insurance coverage to about 32 million uninsured Americans, about 10% of our country. And they do this by expanding both private and public insurance. Now, for me, from a very high-level point of view, one would think that these humanistic goals should have bipartisan support. I mean, quality health care at affordable prices should be a right for every American, not a privilege. But I guess it's how you package it, you know, and how you intend to pay for it. This is where we get into these heated debates. So to get into the details and to make sense of this healthcare debate, we're very lucky to welcome Kimberly Leonard. Kimberly is a senior healthcare reporter for Business Insider, uh, reporting about the intersection of policy, politics, and business. And she often appears on and covers live political events for CNBC, MSNBC, Fox News, and C-SPAN. And she's written about the ins and outs of the Affordable Care Act. She's interviewed communities in the midst of the opioid crisis, and she shed light on major social policies affecting our country today. Kimberly, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Great. Now, today, as you know, we're going to talk about and dissect the Affordable Care Act and discuss what makes it so controversial. For me, from a high-level point of view, that doesn't sound too bad. But what I want you to do, if you could break this down for a bit, and we're going to start at a very high level, you know, what the ACA is supposed to do and what are some of the controversial issues? And after that, we're gonna dig a little bit deeper into a few of these issues. Sounds good? Definitely. Excellent. So why don't you start telling us a little bit about the Affordable Care Act? Well, the main portion of the Affordable Care Act that people sort of think of right away is that it gave more robust health insurance to more people. So about 20 million people were able to enroll through the Affordable Care Act. That means either getting government-subsidized health insurance, that's private insurance, or it means signing up through Medicaid, which is a fully government program um, that is for low-income people, but that isn't really used in every state. It also has a few other measures that uh, make sure that insurance covers a lot more than it did 
prior to when the ACA passed. So it allows, it, it obligates insurers to cover sick people. It obligates them not to charge them more than healthy people. That's what you hear about when you hear about, you know, protections for pre-existing conditions being talked about a lot on Capitol Hill. It also allowed adults to stay on their parents' health insurance until the age of 26. That's another popular provision. And created all kinds of other, you know, programs and portions of and, and changes to the health and health system and the health insurance system that, you know, people might not always know about. So for example, when you go into a chain restaurant and you now see calories on the menu, that's actually a direct result of the Affordable Care Act. Seniors on Medicare uh, pay less out of pocket for drugs because of the ACA. Uh, there's been a whole kind of new sub agency created due to the ACA that allows um, the government to sort of test out different ways of paying for healthcare in order to improve healthcare, um, but also pay less for it. And so there's sort of this whole, you know, wide ranging undergirding, I would say at this point of the Affordable Care Act that reaches into a lot of different parts of the healthcare system. And, um, you know, now that it's been, you know, over 10 years, we've seen how it's interlocked with a lot of different parts of the industry. All right. Now, that was great. Thank you. But we're going to start to get into these a little bit deeper. I mean, everything that you said talks about the healthcare system today and seems so important. But it seems, you know, when I open the paper every day, there's so much controversy. And that's kind of what I want to figure out and figure out why, right? So if we talk about some of these items, let's talk about, you mentioned pre-existing conditions. Now, obviously we're in the middle of a global pandemic right now. Uh, we have close to 8 million Americans that have contracted COVID-19. Um, and unfortunately, this 8 million number, it's very highly skewed to the middle and lower income wage earners who have historically had issues getting health insurance to begin with. Now, you know, you talk about government subsidized health care, you talk about Medicaid, you know, what's going to happen here? What's the debate about um, and how could this be taken away? Well, one of the sort of problems that has really followed the Affordable Care Act all along was that it was passed you know, along party lines. So it was passed only by Democrats. And so for a long time, the fact that Democrats went at it alone was something that Republicans could attack in different campaign cycles. Um, you know, they could sort of say that, you know, your health insurance was being taken away and that uh, people wouldn't get to keep the same doctors and so on and so forth. It is true that the ACA had some problems because it was disruptive at the beginning. There, you know, when you tell people they can't have the insurance they had before, which, by the way, wasn't always very good insurance, um, and they're moved on to a new plan that is significantly more expensive because not everyone gets subsidies, then you get a lot of backlash there. You also see that at the beginning of the ACA, and we'll get into this more, I think, later in the conversation, but there was a penalty that would be incurred on people who did not get health insurance, and that was an extremely unpopular part of the law. On top of that, there were a lot of problems initially when they tried to set up these health insurance marketplaces. You know, a lot of websites didn't work for people to purchase insurance. There were all kinds of glitches and waiting lines and things like that. And so 
it, because it wasn't really handled so well, it definitely reflected poorly on what the law would look like and, you know, gave a sort of political attack. And, you know, one that definitely was probably, you know, something that people were very frustrated with um, in order to say, this is what happens when the government tries to take over your health care. And so that really, you know, led was sort of the beginning underpinning of what we have today, which is that, um, you know, the Affordable Care Act is still controversial with Republicans, um, and it's facing another lawsuit, one of many, um, but this one will actually hit the Supreme Court uh, one week after Election Day. Right. And, and we'll talk about that. So, I mean, besides the pride of authorship issue that you're talking about, whereas this was written by Democrats without Republican um with a lot, without a lot of Republican, you know, intervention or say, you know, there were growing pains. There was certainly uh, a lot of consternation because this was a change. This was something new. But you did mention some points that there were a lot of issues on the rollout. You know, is is this still the hangover from that? Um, I don't know if it still applies as much right now, just because it ha it has been a little while. I do think that probably one of the things that people are learning uh, during the middle of this pandemic is that, you know, if they lose their health insurance, that often going to the marketplaces isn't as affordable as they might like it to be, um, because, you know, you do get subsidies to pay for private health insurance except if you make above a certain income threshold, which is roughly, you know, for an individual about $50,000 a year. So anytime you sort of get above that threshold, you're responsible for this health insurance, which can be expensive. And the uh, deductibles can also be expensive. So I think some negative feelings that remain about that have to do with affordability. Having said that, in some states, because of the Affordable Care Act, you can, you can, sign up for Medicaid, which is almost no cost to the individual and is a popular program. And, you know, having that option in the pandemic, and we've seen Medicaid enrollment grow in states, we'll probably see it grow even more, you know, depending on how all this shakes out, um, has, you know, I don't know that people necessarily connect it to the Affordable Care Act very much, but it is one of the parts of the ACA that, you know, we've really seen people who are enrolled in Medicaid plans um, have a you know, positive experience with it, polls well with them. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the aspects um, to keeping the overall cost low, and you started to talk about this, was with the individual mandate. Now, as I understand it, like this mandate said that either you have health insurance or you have to pay a penalty. Now, from, again, just my understanding, it was basically forcing all Americans to have health insurance. But by doing that, it ensured that there were more healthy people entering the health insurance market, which lowered the risk for the insurers and therefore lower, lowering the overall cost of health care insurance. Now, was, is my understanding correct? And, you know, can you talk about the pros and the cons of this provision and then what happened? How did that change? For sure. Well, you're correct in how it was argued into law. That was what they hoped to achieve, that the uh, it was it's sort of the carrot and the stick argument. Right. In that, what you know, is the stick, the penalty enough to get people to purchase health insurance? And 
you know, one of the things that we sort of largely found is that it didn't seem to matter that much as to whether people purchase insurance or not. Uh, the penalty in a lot of cases was lower than what people would have paid for health insurance. And it also had a lot of um, exceptions. I had one person tell me, you know, if you're paying the penalty, you're doing it wrong just because there were so many ways out of it. It was, you know, if you missed certain utility bills or cell phone bills and things like that, you could actually apply to not pay the fine uh, for being uninsured. So it was unpopular just because, you know, I, I think that people don't like to be forced into purchasing something, especially if it if they feel that it's uh, something that's extremely expensive. Um, but I think one of the things that we've learned is that since the penalty was zeroed out um, as part of the Republican tax law that President Trump signed into law um, and, and that took effect in 2019, is that what really help, what really causes people to sign up for health insurance is if they feel like they can afford it. And so because of a lot of the changes of, and I, I'm not going to really get into it that much, but because a lot of the changes that the Trump administration made to the health care law, it actually made it so that people are getting far more generous subsidies for health insurance. And so if they're paying zero dollars out of pocket, do you need a fine to encourage them to do that? Probably not. They'll probably gladly sign up. And so um, it seems as though making health insurance more affordable is a, a more important mechanism to getting people to sign up for coverage. Okay. So as you said, that um, penalty was zeroed out. So instead of it being um, a, a dollar tax or a dollar penalty, it went to zero, but it still stayed on the books. So you know, went to court, the individual mandate was upheld as a constitutional exercise of Congress, calling it its taxing power. Um, but the individual mandate is still being litigated right now, and it's changed a little bit. There's, you mentioned California v. Texas, and that's going in front of the Supreme Court um, right the week after the election. Mm -hmm. So talk about that a little bit. How, you know, how can this affect the ACA, just this one uh, portion of the ACA. Right. And, you know, the ACA has been before the courts so many times just for a lot of its different provisions and also because it leaves a lot of rulemaking up to an administration. So it's been a lot of time in and out of courts and at times its whole, you know, being has been threatened. And so back in 2012, the Supreme Court decided to uphold the health care law and they were asked to look at it because um, those opposed said that Congress could not force people to buy health insurance. And the Supreme Court decided that they could. They decided that the mandate was important and crucial to making the rest of the health care law work, which is what the Obama administration argued at the time. And so they upheld the law, most of it. And um, the reason why this whole question is sort of back is a little bit different this time. Essentially, Republican state officials, after Congress zeroed out the fine on the uninsured, uh, waged a lawsuit saying, you know, you argued that this fine was so crucial to the law working before, and now there's no fine. So obviously the law doesn't work anymore. This is an argument that many conservative legal scholars oppose, even if they, you know, were opposed to the way the Supreme Court upheld the ACA back in 2012. 
And so that's the argument that they're looking at. Um, it's an argument that the Trump administration has sided with, but it's not one, interestingly enough, that Republicans in Congress, at least in the Senate, side with. Um, you know, the idea of striking down the entire law or the idea of only striking down provisions like protections for people with pre-existing conditions without having some sort of a backstop and some sort of a plan in place, some sort of a, you know, conservative alternative isn't attractive um, to lawmakers. And it certainly isn't attractive to them heading into a crucial election. Right. But this case in front of the Supreme Court um, has a chance of striking down the entire uh, act, the entire ACA act or law. Well, I, I think that Democrats would like to frame it that way as they're looking at this confirmation happening. They don't see any way to stop it. And they're hoping that voters instead will be motivated to, you know, go to the ballot box. So they're running on, you know, this confirmation means your health care will be taken away. That's their big message heading into the election. They're on that. That's what the Senate is arguing. That's what the House is arguing. That's what you see the Biden campaign arguing. And I think that, you know, it's less clear where Justice Barrett would be um, if she were to be confirmed. But they're but as I mentioned earlier, there, this isn't the same argument as in 2012, and it's not the same case that we had before. And if you talk to a lot of conservatives who oppose the ACA, they think this is a shaky legal argument. And so it's hard to see, you know, the, the, how, you, how you sort of get to an argument that is in favor of striking down the entire law. However you know, anything, anything could happen for sure. And it does, it does mean replacing a sure vote for the ACA with one that is, a, I would say, a question mark. Now, is the ruling from this case, would it be a binary type of ruling? Meaning that either they say no, you know, and let things go on as, as they have been, or if they vote um, uh, you know, uh, against, you know, California v. Texas, and they say, we're invalidating this, uh, this tax or this penalty, would that negate the entire ACA? I mean, are we at risk of losing everything overnight, I guess is the question. Well, even if they did go in that direction, there would probably be some sort of stay on the law. And I think that's what a lot of, um, a lot of Republicans are sort of banking on, you know, that even if they were to strike it down, which, you know, they don't believe it will, um, that there, that there would be a sort of holding period until some kind of a backup plan arrives. So it's not as though people would lose their insurance overnight, but, you know, it does introduce a lot of chaos potentially. As I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, the ACA touches a lot of different parts of our health insurance system and a lot of different parts of healthcare. And so that's where it becomes complicated, you know, which parts of the law really relied on this penalty. Um, and as I mentioned, it seems like it wasn't even that important to begin with. Um, you know, maybe they would have been better off never have had, in, had it in the first place. Um, I'm not sure, but um, it, it, could, it could go in a lot of different directions. They could just strike down the protections for people with pre-existing conditions. They could just rule the mandate unconstitutional and leave it at that. You know, if there's a Democratic um, House, Senate and White House, 
They could reinstitute a very small fine if they wanted to, to just kind of quickly deal with the problem. Um, so it could go in a lot of different directions. I, I don't want to, you know, downplay necessarily the threat, but it does seem as though, um, you know, if you talk to a lot of different experts on this, they, they would be shocked if this were to go through, you know, however, a, a lot of it is going to be up to whoever's in the White House, whoever's in the House and Senate to just kind of getting everything on a more stable footing. All right. So I guess you're saying the 10% of Americans in the country, uh, they're not at risk of losing whatever health insurance they have right now overnight. But this will kind of kickstart uh, further discussion around where do we go from here and what do we do? And we For do sure. And, you know, one thing I, I will point out is that House Democrats already have a, a sort of enhancement bill for the Affordable Care Act. You know, a lot of the issues that I mentioned earlier on in the podcast about affordability, that's something that they do recognize. And they have a, a plan called the Affordable Care Enhancement Act that would actually pour you know, a lot more money into these health insurance marketplaces so that people would only pay about uh, 9% of their income or so on health insurance and the rest would be picked up by the government. Now, is that the best way to get prices under control in this country? I'm not sure, but that's that's their proposal. And it certainly would reduce what individuals directly pay for their premiums. Right. I mean, that's interesting because, you know, it's been said by the president and I'm quoting his words. The, the ACA is a broken mess and awful for the American people. Right. And we talked about a couple of the controversial issues, but. What has the administration offered up? What what have the Republicans have offered up over the past four years, other than these complaints and using them as talking points for the election and scare people? You know, what have they done to provide an alternative or a solution? Yeah, I spoke with um, a White House official just very recently about this. You know, they say that they're still working on a plan. They don't have a plan quite ready. My understanding is from speaking with you know, folks who've left the White House, who'd been there for a time, is that they are sort of banking on the fact that A, it won't get repealed, or B, that um, if it does, then there will be time to sort of figure it all out. Um, and, you know, that it wouldn't, that nothing would go right away. You know, one of the problems with presenting an alternative is that then you have something to fight against, you know, so it's almost easier to be vague. And I think both sides have realized this over the years, you know, it was always really impactful and successful for Republicans to run against the Affordable Care Act and to run on repeal the Affordable Care Act without having a unified replacement. Democrats in 2018 ran on the fact that Republicans tried to get rid of the Affordable Care Act because suddenly when, you know, its very being was threatened, it got more popular among voters. And so sometimes, well, more often than not, it helps to be vague in politics. And if the administration were to provide a plan, then that's when you know all the criticisms would come out. And I think that's what they learned um, back when they tried to repeal the ACA. Having said that, I do think that there are some actions the administration has taken that they could point to. For example, they did allow these state waivers that provide federal funding to health insurance marketplaces. They're known as reinsurance, and they really help to bring down the cost of health insurance. It's state by state, so it's not, you know, across the country, but it is one way to sort of help out. Uh, they also created this rule in which 
employers, instead of offering their own um, health insurance to their workers, can say to their workers, okay, here's some you know tax-free money and you can go buy your own health insurance on the marketplaces. Now, if there were to be a huge uptake in that, it could really make a difference because you would see a lot more people on these ACA marketplaces, and that would really help to bring costs down for health insurance. And we just don't know how much uptake there will be on that. But they've also done a lot in terms of trying to get more information to patients, whether it's you know their doctor's notes, whether it's having access to their own health information, whether it's having hospitals post prices of what they charge for different services. So they've done a lot of actions. They haven't always um, unified in how to speak about them, um, and they also have you know done things that that Democrats criticize in terms of providing what are known as short-term plans, which, you know, don't cover pre-existing conditions. Um, but at the same time, you know, Republicans could argue, well, the alternative is that people would just be uninsured. So is it better to have something than nothing? So that's kind of the back and forth um, that's been going on um, and, you know, much more detail than we get on the campaign trail, for sure. You mentioned, you know, it's besides the government subsidized insurance and the Medicaid insurance, in either case for either party, you know, is anybody looking to get away from private insurance as well? I mean, what's all the talk about socialized medicine as a whole for the country? Well, former Vice President Joe Biden, um, if he wins, has said that he would like to see what's known as a public option introduced, which would give more people, well, which would give people the ability to purchase a government plan instead of a private plan. That'll be very hard to get across the finish line. Um, if there's one thing that health insurance companies love, it's the Enhancement Act that Democrats have put forward. They would go all in against um, the idea of having to compete with the price of a public plan. And so that was something that, you know, the original makers of the Affordable Care Act wanted in there, it didn't make it through. It'd be hard to do it again, but you know they may try. I will say they're not really unified on how to do it. Um, you know, the question of you know whether to let states let more people sign up for Medicaid, whether to let people buy into Medicare, um, you know, whether to sort of create like a Medicare Advantage plan. There's just all these different public option ideas that are floating around and um, that they're not really unified on, you know, not to mention that progressives want to see Medicare for all, which would abolish private health insurance in favor of putting everyone into a public plan. And so there's definitely a brewing battle coming. Um, even if Democrats do get unified control of government, there's a lot of intraparty disagreements about what the best next step will be for healthcare in this country. And I should mention one sort of final piece to this is that um, another way to kind of think about going at this that um, former Vice President Joe Biden has presented would let people buy into Medicare at age 60. So basically reducing that eligibility level. So that's one that might be less controversial with insurers. Now, that's a great segue. What do you see happening? you know, to our healthcare system over the next four, four years or eight years, you know, whether it be a Republican or a Democratic-led government, irrespective of that, what do you Well, think I definitely think that healthcare will continue to get more and more expensive. 
um, you know, this is the the Affordable Care Act for all the things that it did do, and it did do a lot. It didn't really get a hold of the prices that you see for healthcare. You know, what you're paying at the pharmacy, the surprise medical bill that you get when you go to the hospital, even when you think you've done all your homework and checked all the boxes to make sure that you understand the care that you get. So unless there is some major appetite to reduce what we pay for healthcare, it'll be very hard to get a handle on that. You know, one of the problems is that as soon as you start to talk about price control, the question is who takes the hit? Is it the doctor? Is it the health insurance company? And so they're, that's why they tend to sort of unite together against the idea of any sort of price controls. I do think that if Democrats gain and, and I don't I don't typically like to make predictions, but just on, based on, you know, what we're seeing and based on the battle lines I sort of see being drawn and the fact that Democrats are basically running this whole, you know, 2018 or 2020 election on health care, just like they did in 2018. You know, I think that probably the ACA Enhancement Act would be the direction they would go in first and then move on to other priorities. Yeah, after a stimulus, a stimulus would probably be first. But, you know, I see them more as trying to stabilize the ACA as opposed to trying to make any major changes. They'll be under a lot of pressure to go bolder than that. I just don't know that it will be strong enough to, um, you know, persuade the entire party. And um, so, you know, and that that would help to reduce what some individuals pay for their health insurance. Um, I, I'm not as persuaded that, um, you know, as part of that bill, there's actually the ability to, there would be the ability for Medicare to negotiate the price of up to 250 prescription drugs that sort of tucked into this bigger, you know, healthcare reform bill. Um, I, I'm not as persuaded that they'll be able to get that across the finish line as much as, as they've promised to do that, just because, you know, I noticed the way that patient groups, which are often funded by um, pharmaceutical companies, the way that they, you know, sort of held back and didn't criticize those that bill when uh, Democrats passed it in the House, you know, knowing that it would go nowhere. But if it was an actual threat, I just I just think that the the backlash would be a lot stronger and the pressure would be a lot stronger. So um, so really enhance depending on, you know, I, I think it's certain that that prices will go up. But I think that depending on who has control of government, I, I see them working first toward um, pouring additional funding into the ACA. Kimberly, this is wonderful. You know, you've educated me, I'm sure all our listeners as well. And this has been terrific. Thank, Thank you. you so much for your time. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or future story suggestions, please reach out to us on social media. Thank you. And we hope you enjoyed the RP HealthCast.